When we're trying to understand why do people share certain types of information but not others, it's not necessarily about the details of that story or the details of that information. It's more around what are they trying to say to their friends, family, to their acquaintances? What is the statement they're trying to say about their identity? I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. This episode of Daily Matters is brought to you by the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference, the world's best legal conference, which is going completely virtual for the first time in eight years. Get your pass now at cliocloudconference.com. Today's guest is award-winning digital media scholar, author, and journalist, Alfred Hermida. Alfred is director and professor at the School of Journalism, Writing, and Media at the University of British Columbia. He's the co-founder of The Conversation Canada, and he's a former online news pioneer with the BBC. He's also written three books on journalism and social media. Alfred, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure to be chatting with you. Well, Alfred, you've been at the forefront of digital media for more than two decades. Can you give us a bit of background on your career? Well, before I became a professor, I was a journalist with the BBC. And I started in the early 90s, before the internet became a thing, really working in radio and television. But got the internet bug in, in the late 90s as one of the founding news editors of the BBC News website in 1997. And for me, going online was a real revelation because after having worked in radio and television, online offered all these possibilities, different ways of telling stories, combining images, combining sound, combining video, but also being able to get feedback from your audience, being able to ask them, we've written a news story, what do you think of it? Or this event is coming up, what, what, what questions do you have? And it's sort of that interaction with the audience, getting to be able to move away from the sort of the one-way street of traditional journalism, traditional media, into much more of an interactive medium that really excites me about online and the way online has developed since then, since the early 90s. And you've written three books on, on this and other topics, Alfred. Can you tell us about your most recent book, which dives into the concept of data journalism? Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, what I sought to look is really explore this idea of, of, the, of, a, of a media space where journalists, media producers like yourselves, we share it with the audience. You know, the audience has the ability to do a podcast much as the way that you can. Everybody can do this. And looking at how do we as media producers work with those audiences. My most recent book is uh, about data journalism and the regeneration of news. It's co-written with my UBC colleague, Marilyn Young. And for that, we studied data journalism as an emerging phenomenon in journalism, as a way of how journalists are trying to tell better stories, more accurate stories, more factual stories using data. And really think of different ways that we can show the audience complex storytellings. As you know, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, a data visualization, a graph you can look at and see the story can have more impact than a thousand words trying to explain that story. So we, we interviewed data journalists in the US. We interviewed just about every data journalist in Canada to see how they're working. And what was interesting there is you find that the journalists working in data are sort of working as little entrepreneurs within their media organizations because they're working in broadcast or they're working in print, 
but they're trying to find new ways of telling stories and ways of telling stories that the audience can understand, really make complexity much more simple. And that's challenging. We've seen this with COVID-19 and the coronavirus pandemic, where we hear every day about figures of infections, of deaths, of transmissions, and it's complicated. If we look at a graph, we can suddenly see the story. We can see the story, say in British Columbia, with infections over the last six months. We saw what they were like in March, we see what they're like now, and we can see that they're going up. A graph tells us that. We don't need somebody to explain it in a thousand words. And I think that's the power of using data combined with visualizations and interactivity online to be able to help break down complexity and make it more accessible to audiences. Can you give us some examples, Alfred, of where you see this being done at a, a really high level? Are there some, some really key moments over the, the past number of years that you've seen this idea of data journalism manifested in a, a really concrete way that you can share? Well, we see some of the leading uh, media organizations such as the New York Times, the BBC, obviously, and uh, even at CBC here in Canada, looking to, at ways of telling stories using data. And I'll give you an example from the early days of BBC News Online, where um, this is in the early 2000s. And there was a lot of discussion around energy policy and how to have a greener energy policy and the cost of that. So this is highly technical, involving a mix of wind power, solar power, nuclear power. You can imagine it's the sort of thing that most of us really are not that interested in. We want greener energy, but we don't, the details are so complex. And what the BBC did is they did a little sort of data online game where you would go into this interactive site and you could choose and say, well, if I want greener energy, I'll have more wind power or I will have more green power. And once you put in major choices, it would tell you, well, if we do this, your energy bill will go up by this amount or your energy bill will go this or it means we need to build more nuclear power stations. So it took all the data that goes into making policy and turned it into a sort of interactive visual game. And of course, once you do it once, you realize, no, I don't want my energy bills to go up. And you'd go back and try it again. And that proved incredibly popular on the BBC News website. And it was a way of taking a really complex policy issue, but something that is crucial to the future of the planet. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about our energy choices. These are key challenges that we face, but they're incredibly complex. By combining data, visualization, and the interactivity of the web, you can actually take back some of that complexity and put the audience in the driving seat. Say, you make the choices and you realize, and then you can figure out what the consequences are. And there's a way of saying, these policy decisions are challenging. They come at a cost. And every decision we make around green energy has a consequence and we have to live with those consequences. So I think that for me was one, a very early example of the power of combining data, visualization and interactivity to help people really understand some of the complex, wicked problems that we face in society. Uh, there's some interesting parallels here too with, with lawyers that are increasingly needing to deal with the same kind of sea of data in various aspects of their jo jobs, both in the courtroom and, and in their law offices and thinking about how can they leverage data to, to, to storytell, to, to make a case for a, 
for a client in the courtroom or, or how to optimize their firm from a key performance indicator standpoint. Uh, and it feels like lawyers that have been trained in lawyering are facing what some of the same challenges journalists that have been trained in, in being great journalists are facing, which is they, they may not have the sophistication and the training and how to, how to manage data. And, and many of us are, are needing to earn a side degree in statistics and analysis just to do jobs that might have seemed completely decoupled from that 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, can, can you tell us about how journalists are, are navigating that, that challenge in the, in the newsroom? Are they, are they bringing in different kind of staff to support them in those analyses? Are they uh, building up the, their skills on their own? It feels like it's a, a significant new challenge that the, the ocean of data that we're uh, benefiting from in so many ways uh, is, is challenging us in new ways as well. That's a really good point, Jack, because it's a challenge not just in journalism, but in just about every profession. We have more and more data, but that data is only useful if we can make sense of it. And if we can ask the right questions and interview the question, interview the data in an intelligent way to get intelligent answers, because right. we know the whole garbage in, garbage out. That's and right. so more data doesn't necessarily produce a better result. Um, I think here, part of it is using um, automation. So some of the ways journalists and newsrooms have tried to approach this is by developing um, sort of machine learning that can basically, in some ways, not just w work with figures, but work with text, work with reams and reams of documents to be able to search for it for particular keywords or particular sections. So in some ways, using machine learning to do a first pass at that data to figure out is there something in these documents that is relevant to my story or for lawyers that's relevant to your case? Um, so instead of having one of the associates go through all these documents or a team going through documents, using AI as a, to take an initial first pass to interrogate that data and try to surface what's, what's happening. The other way journalists are using this and people like Bloomberg are doing this, um, the LA Times has been doing this, uh, the Washington Post has been doing this, is using machine learning to look at reports, say, from the police and to automatically write a news story. Because a report from a police about an incident has specific information, has a location, has a time, has a type of incident, has information about the people involved. And having programs that can basically scrape this structured data, which is what it is, and produce it into a short, concise news story. This is happening in the UK as well with uh, statistical data, where the Press Association, that's the National, data, National Journalism Organization, it has a system where every time there's official statistics, it will have its machine write a news story to say the latest statistics say unemployment is up or down. But then they also can write individual stories for each city or for each province. So suddenly instead of having a journalist get the same data and have 100 journalists write local versions of the story, a machine can take a first pass of writing those local versions of the story. The advantage there is that you as a newsroom will get that story and figure out, oh, this is interesting. Unemployment in Vancouver was way lower than in Burnaby. I wonder why that is. Now, so that the machine has done the work for you. And I think this is where other professions, lawyers, other sectors that use a lot of data can benefit for using machine learning and algorithmic technology to try to 
and since analyze some of that data, bring out some of the details. And when you have data that essentially has geolocated data, you can really bring that out and it can highlight certain differences between say the national figure compared to the local figure. So these are ways that we're trying to make more sense of the data because more data isn't necessarily better information. More data is just simply more data. Alfred, let's shift gears a little bit and look to your previous book, which was titled, Tell Everyone Why We Share and Why It Matters. And this explores a topic we've talked about quite a bit on the, the podcast here, which is social media and, and how it's transforming the way we communicate, transforming the way that we form opinions. Uh, and as you point out in the book, uh, shifts our notions around uh, what an informed and engaged public is. And, and we're obviously seeing this today more than ever as we run up to the, the next US election and, and what a major role social media is playing in uh, the COVID-19 discussion. Can you tell us what some of the high level takeaways are from your book and, and share those with our listeners? And tell everyone, what I was trying to do is take a sort of an overview of how social media has changed what we know and how we know it and why people work, react in certain ways on social media. In some ways, social media is so new, it's so young, we're still figuring out how to do it. And what happens, the history of technology is that the way we think a technology is going to play out isn't necessarily the way it's going to play out. So to understand social media, what I try to get at in the book is not focus on, oh, how does Facebook work or how does Twitter work, but how do we work as humans? Why is it that we do certain things on social media? So, for example, when we talk about the debate around fake news, uh, conspiracy theories that are spread on social media, why do they spread on social media? Well, one of it is it's an open platform where hundreds of thousands of people can express themselves and share stuff. But why would somebody share something that isn't true? And I think this is key to understanding how people relate to the media and how people work on social media. And in the book, what I look at is the reasons why we do this. And part of it is human nature. We use social media as a way of expressing who we are, as a way of making an identity statement, as a way of saying what's important to us. So when we're trying to understand why do people share certain types of information but not others, it's not necessarily about the details of that story or the details of that information. It's more around what are they trying to say to their friends family to their acquaintances? What is the statement they're trying to say about their identity? Um, and what is it they're trying to say to their circle of friends? This comes back to the question of social capital, political capital, economic capital. You know, when we do something on social media, what part of what we're doing is creating social capital. We're trying to say to our friends, look, I know about this topic, or I found something that's really interesting and entertaining. And I think that's one of the things that comes when you wonder why do people share something that looks like in social media, it's not true. It's the whole, you know, you know, you wouldn't believe this. Well, people sometimes share the you wouldn't believe this, not because they know it's true or false, simply because it's entertaining. It's like, believe it or not, look what I've seen. And everybody knows it's not true. So it's not the fact that it's true or false that's the issue. It's is it entertaining? And that's kind of part of what I try to do is unpack why is it that we do certain things on social media that seem really strange and odd, like sharing something that we know is not true, 
but we share it because we think it's going to be entertaining. We think it's going to make our friends laugh. We think it's kind of news of the weird. There's all these reasons. And if we don't understand why people share what they share on social media, then we can't tackle things like fake news. We can't tackle things like conspiracies. We need to understand how human nature interacts with this very, very new technology. And that will help un understand why things are happening the way they are. And is this also elaborating on, on some of the ideas that you, you just shared there, thinking about the incentive structures that are baked into these social media platforms uh, when it comes to getting likes or getting retweets? What are the reward mechanisms that these social media platforms providing users? And, and essentially, if the reward, reward mechanism is get more followers, get more likes, get more retweets, are, are you seeing that come through in the behavior as well? This is not just something they find you know, interesting, but maybe something that they think people will react to. That's, that's very true, because I look at social media in a way like it's, it's a city you've created. And when city planners create a city, they make decisions around, is there going to be a highway through the city? Where the park's going to be located? What's public access? What's private property? You know, when somebody designs a park, they can make a choice between having lots of green spaces, having playing fields, having a skateboard park. These are all conscious decisions that will affect how people use those spaces. Similarly with social media, they're making conscious decisions to try to get people hooked on that platform. And that's where these incentives come in. Because uh, one of the things I found when I was researching Tell Everyone is in neuroscience, uh, there's been research looking at how the brain reacts to different incentives. And one of the really remarkable things uh, I found in the research is that when we are assessing information, we already start thinking about whether is somebody going to be interested in this before we're actually even consciously aware. Our brain is already making those calculations before we're consciously aware of, do I hit that retweet? Do I hit that like button? So it's sort of like baked into the way we think. And of course, if we share something and we see that we're getting a lot of reaction, that is rewarding to us. And of course, the more, re the more rewards we get, the better we feel, the more we want to do that. And these platforms understand that. These platforms understand how we work as humans, understand the science behind how we react with information. And so when we talk about Facebook, when we talk about Instagram, we need to understand the science between, behind how we react on these platforms and how these platforms seek to manipulate us. You know, I often talk about this in class with my students and you know, it's often surprising that you know, these are students who are on social media all the time. It's where they live. But when you peel back and you say, well, actually these platforms have created an environment that rewards certain types of behavior and dis disencourages other forms of behavior, and in a sense, tries to manipulate you to do certain things in a certain way. They're really surprised because for them, it's like, oh, well, I'm just doing this because it's my own free will, rather than saying, no, no, you're working within really structures of incentives. And, you know, Facebook wants you to spend more time on Facebook, wants you to spend more time on liking things because that gives them more data that they can then sell to their advertisers. And once you peel that back, I can see that in my students going, oh, this is not just an open space where anything goes. It's a space that's being created in a particular way that's trying to encourage me to 
to act and behave in a particular way. Much like when a city planner creates a park, you're trying to encourage people to behave and use it in a certain way. What do you think the, the dark side of that is, Alfred, when we look at the, the current landscape and much of the toxicity uh, we see happening on, on various social media platforms, what underlying reward mechanisms or, or as you said, what the frame you use, how, how's the park been designed in a way that is maybe uh, creating behaviors or creating an environment that, that might alarm you at some, in, at some level? I think that's one of the really big questions here. And part of it is understanding that, you know, the logic in social media is not the logic of broadcast media, of print media. It's, it's actually a different type of space. And if we don't understand the rules, if we don't understand the structures, then we can't actually address the issues we have around fake information, conspiracy theories. Uh, so if we think about how journalists and politicians and businesses have tried to react when there's fake information about a story or about the businesses. They try to, you know, you try to put a correction or you say this is not factually true. Well, that's fine, but actually that doesn't work necessarily because telling somebody that they're wrong doesn't necessarily change their mind. Telling somebody you've done something stupid on social media and everybody can see it is not a way to win them over. Um, so it's really understanding why would somebody share this? What's the lived experience that to them, this statement by a politician or this uh, story that, oh, my pizza had flies in it, makes sense to them. You know, it's, it's less whether the pizza had flies in it or not. They're not necessarily sharing because they know it's true or false, but because somehow that resonated with them. Maybe they had a bad experience at a pizza company. Maybe they're just having a bad day. Maybe they think, hey, my friends will find it funny that next time you order a pizza, watch out, there might be flies in it. This is less to do with the veracity of the information and more around how we as humans react to this. And I think that becomes much more challenging because then we're saying to businesses, we're saying to journalists, it's not about the facts. Facts matter, but you can't just fight misinformation with facts. You need to understand why is it that people believe this misinformation. And part of this, again, is human nature. It's cognitive dissonance. If you believe something to be true, and I'm trying to say to you, no, no, you're wrong, what you tend to do is you tend to double down and find a rationale for saying why that is true. Um, and that's really hard to find because the more I argue with you, the more you'll be entrenched. So the more I tell you you're wrong, the more you believe, no, I actually am right because I have a different way of thinking about this. And you know, people who use social media for nefarious means, political campaigns who try to manipulate uh, the public, um, businesses who are trying to influence the decisions you make, they understand this. They understand that it's not just about the facts. It's about how we feel about something. It's about how we connect with something. It's about how it relates to the lives we live and how it makes sense to us internally. Alfred, when you look at the changing media landscape, as you've described in your, your, your books, uh, you, you've reacted in, in a way by co-founding the Conversation Canada. Can you tell us more about this organization, the project, and, and what you're hoping to achieve with it? Thank you. That was, a, again, a project with my UBC colleague, Marilyn Young. 
Uh, the conversation started out in Australia uh, just over a decade ago. And the idea was saying, well, we have you know, academics who are experts in their areas. Um, they're not so good at public communication. They're not so good at making their ideas accessible to the public. Who is good at communicating with the public? Journalists, it's what we do for a living. Journalists try to make complex ideas accessible to the public. And so the idea is, if we bring together academics and journalists, can we get the best of both worlds? So with the conversation, all the articles, news analysis, commentary, explainers are written by academics. So we get the benefit of their expertise, but they're mentored and edited by professional journalists. So then you get the, 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 the best of journalism in terms of making those ideas far more accessible to the public. Um, we founded this in 2017. It's funded by universities, but operates as an independent news organization. We have a team of journalists based in Toronto on this. I'm on the board of directors, but I get no pay for this. We did this as, a, as an intervention, as a way of saying, you know, Canada needs more high quality expert journalism. Academics have that expertise. Journalists have the ability to bring that expertise to the public. Can we do this in Canada? And that was our motivation behind the Conversation Canada, to try to make more high quality news analysis, commentary, explainers available to the Canadian media landscape. And the model here is it's a nonprofit model. So everything published is available for anybody to publish for free. It's all under Creative Commons. And what that means is if an academic writes for the conversation, it could get picked up by the National Post, it could get picked up by CBC, it could get picked up by the Washington Post, it could get picked up across the world. And that's really powerful because then an academic who's at UBC here in Vancouver, at the University of Toronto, University of Winnipeg, could suddenly see their work getting an international audience. And that's great for that academic, it's great for journalism, and it's great for Canada. So this seems like an interesting way that journalism is is evolving. In, in one way, there's obviously a, a litany of ways that journalism has changed radically in the last 10 years. Can you tell us what you see as some of the most important adaptations that journalism is is going through and, and what you might see the the next five years looking like as we continue to see this, this evolution to online, the evolution toward uh, data-driven journalism and um, as, as, as you're pointing out in our previous conversation, uh, maybe more academically rigorous journalism as well. I think the really big change is that basically journalists now share the media with everybody. You know, it's shared with businesses, it's shared with publics, it's shared with interest groups in a way that really we've never seen before. So you know, a business could always put out their own little pamphlet and newsletter, but they couldn't get the circulation or distribution and amplification that they could do or reach people interested in that particular issue. Now, through the internet and particularly social media, what that means is you can actually reach a group of people interested in your topic, regardless of geography, regardless of time zone, regardless of the country you're in. This is remarkably powerful. So journalists are now sharing the media space with a whole bunch of different voices. And sometimes that has negative effects because we've seen a lot more conspiracy theories, um, toxic posts around 
women, particularly prominent women in, in politics or in business, but it could also mean things like Black Lives Matter and things like the Me Too movement, who can raise issues that the media is not paying attention to, that politicians are ignoring, that businesses are turning a blind eye to, that lawyers are kind of know it's there, but it doesn't really become a key issue because the public isn't demanding that a company address this particular issue. And I think that's one of the big changes we've seen with the internet and social media, is the idea of the media as a contested space. It's contested with different voices. Of course, institutions still have tremendous power. And if you're the Global Mail, you're much louder than somebody in a bedroom in Burnaby tweeting about a particular story. Somebody might not see that. So institutions still have power, but it's the ability as a collective for people to come together and raise concerns about particular issues and change the agenda. We've seen this with the Me Too campaign. We've seen these with Black Lives Matter. We saw it in Canada with Idle No More and the indigenous protests of environmental issues. These are ways of giving voice to people whose voices were not just ignored, but silenced and marginalized in the media and in other sectors, in politics and business. And because that's happening, we have to pay attention to that. We cannot ignore this. Um, and that's been, I think, the biggest change we've seen in the media landscape. Journalists operating in a space where they're sharing the media and it is a contested media environment. You're no longer, um, as a journalist, this abstract voice of authority. You can't just say, I'm a journalist, trust me. I have to earn that trust. I have to be ready to be open to you. I have to be ready to be accountable. I have to be transparent about what I do. It's a different way of working. But I think these are all positive factors not just in journalism, but also across other professions. Alfred, I'm curious on your, what your perspective would be on what seem to be two trends that are at, at odds with one another. On, on one hand, we see this rise of data journalism and we see uh, news stories better supported by data that you, you would hope is objective and, and maybe helps neutralize a story and make it seem more, more fact-based and, and less uh, political or less partisan. And yet, on the other hand, we see what, what seems to be uh, eroding trust in the media, in the, the general public, despite the fact that we have uh, better data uh, to support uh, these, these news stories and opinions than we've ever had. C can you talk a little bit about, about that disparity and, and maybe what you think we need to see to, to see the, the public rebuilding trust in media? I think here it's, it's a really interesting point because this is a question that's asked in, you know, in so many professions. And this is not in journalism, I can see this in the legal profession, in, in the medical profession, how do we gain that trust? And you gain that, the, the way to gain that trust is not by pumping out more information and saying, I'm the expert. That's, that doesn't work. The way to gain that trust is by listening to be able to say, yes, I am the expert, but I want to listen to your point of view, your perspectives, what is it that you're concerned about? When we look at, say with COVID-19, so social distancing, wearing masks, why is it that you're so opposed to wearing a mask when we know the science tells us wearing masks helps keep transmission rates down? So telling somebody they're wrong, they should wear a mask, 
and saying, I'm an expert, I know I'm better than you is not going to work. So it's really to listen and understand why is it that you're so opposed to this? And I think that's when you start to develop a relationship with your audience, with the people you're trying to connect with. Because it's less about sort of the top-down model of, I know what's best for you, do this. And more, let me understand where you're coming from and how I, what, what I can do, bring my expertise to that to help us move to a place of better understanding. And I, in some ways, that's really what we're seeing now, particularly in places like the US with politics being so polarized. You have two sides shouting at each other. Neither side is trying to understand each other and saying, well, why is it that you say this? Why is it that this is so important to you? So if we have more listening, we can have more understanding, and that can serve as a basis to rebuild that trust. It seems like the root problem here is that that listening's not not happening, though. It seems like there's just foundational unwillingness to listen to different perspectives. Well, and it's hard because... You know, the media system makes it very hard for us to talk at each other all the time and much harder for us to listen to each other. Um, so in some ways, we've, we've gone from a, a media system, a traditional media system of broadcast and print that was very much broadcasting and talking to people to a system of social media that in theory would be more collaborative and more listening, but becomes much more of a platform to talk at other people and less of the listening. It's one of the things really we don't talk about with social media a lot. We, we talk a lot about who's posted something, what's the been the reaction to it, but it's much harder to say, well, who's listening to these messages? Who's reacting to them? It's much harder to see because we don't know if somebody saw a post unless they liked it or recommended it. But if they simply read it, clicked on the link and thought this is important and told their friends, we, d we don't know that's happened. And so the listening aspect is much, much harder. And it's one thing, in Tell Everyone, one of the chapters I talk about is how businesses could value doing more listening. So when there's a, a crisis now, and of course for a business and it explodes on social media, sending out your press release saying, yes, we know we're looking into it. We'll be back, we'll be back with more in three months after investigation. doesn't work because it doesn't show you're listening. Um, the way to react is to acknowledge those complaints, to say, yeah, we think that's important. We're sorry that happened to you. Let's figure out and ask those people, what would you like us to do about that? And there was a case a few years ago when one of the big mobile operators had a major out, outage for about 24 hours. And you know, the traditional response would have been to say, we're working on the problem. But instead, what their social media did is they replied to every single person who complained about it on social media. So they couldn't do much, but they could show that they were listening. They could show that they were paying attention and they could acknowledge the problem individually. And that is a remarkably powerful thing to do on social media. If somebody wants to be heard and you're a business, you're a journalist, you're an institution, if you acknowledge that, yes, I'm hearing you, I'm listening to you, that is remarkably powerful. And what this mobile company did then is essentially change what was a major PR disaster for them into one where, oh, okay, the network's down, but they know the network's down. They've replied to me. They've acknowledged that it's a real problem. It's a real pain to not have my network working, but they're working on it. Oh, but I've been heard. 
I've been acknowledged. That is a remarkable, powerful thing to do on social media. And it's something that I think across the board, we don't do enough of. Acknowledge the voices who want to be heard, who want to be taken seriously. So Alfred, to wrap up, you, as, as you know, this is a legal podcast. And one of the reasons we were so interested in talking to you is there does feel like there's so many parallels between the way that journalists are needing to evolve to, to match the changing landscape and the way that, that lawyers are evolving to adapt to those same changes. Can you talk about what you feel some of the things that, that lawyers should be thinking about most rigorously and carefully about today, given this, this evolving landscape should be? In some ways, I, I can see some parallels, quite parallels with how journalists work. And in some ways, the biggest challenge is that there might be information on social media, on the internet, that affects a case you're working on but as a lawyer, you can't talk about it because of confidentiality. You can't address it, but it will impact that, that case. And it's similar to how journalists might be covering a story where people are reporting that this has happened or that has happened. And as a journalist, you need to check it. You can't just say, oh, somebody on Twitter said 12 people died in this, in this accident. Oh, somebody else said 10 people. You have to check it. But you can't ignore it. You can't ignore the fact that people are talking about this. So it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. And the way journalists have done this is by acknowledging that, yes, this has happened, there's chatter on social media, there's different details, and we're working to verify what's important. And I can see similar issues coming up for lawyers here where people might be talking about a case, say, talking, releasing somebody's name on social media, what we've seen happening, or certain details coming through that you can't talk about, but simply... I think the thing to do is to acknowledge, yes, we know this is happening. We know this has been discussed on social media, but we're bound by confidentiality. We realize it's not ideal, but we, we're not in a position to talk about this and we're working on it to verify it. I think part of that goes back to the point around listening and acknowledging. If we acknowledge that this is happening, then people feel heard, as opposed to pretending that, oh, the, the name of somebody involved in this case isn't circulating on social media. We'll just pretend we didn't see that and carry on as normal. If we acknowledge we know that's happening, but explain we can't really say more than that, I think that will go some way towards building that understanding and building that sense of trust. And I can see that for lawyers in particular, this is really challenging, especially when we're dealing with, of course, social media being a global phenomenon. And we've had cases um, happening in the UK where because of the reporting restrictions and legal restrictions, certain details can't be released by the press, but they have been made available in the US through social media because there's a different legal right. system. And that's, that's a nightmare, not just for the journalists, but for the lawyers, because this, this information is not supposed to be in the public domain, but because we're dealing with different national jurisdictions and social media doesn't, is a global phenomenon, suddenly this is really challenging. So I think that it goes back to acknowledging this is happening and explaining what you can do and can't do about it. In some ways, being very honest and transparent about, yes, we know this is, this is going on. We're bound by confidentiality. We wish we could say more, but this is where we're at and we have to respect the rules of the system and country that we're in. 
Well, Alfred, it's been a super insightful and enlightening conversation. So interesting to hear some of the ways that we're, we're seeing the, the challenges lawyers are facing parallel, some of the challenges journalists are facing. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to chat with you, Jack. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. 